Hey, Slavic Connection listeners, if you've been seeing the Nord Stream 2 popping up in your news feeds, but you're not quite sure what's going on there, then this episode is definitely for you. We had Mark Timnitsky. He's an accredited, widely published freelance journalist who mainly covers Eastern Europe. And he's also the recipient of the inaugural Ukrainian Diaspora 30 Under 30 Award. Mark, if you had like one minute to talk to the average American, tell them why they should care about this. What would you say? Nord Stream 2 not only is bad for energy purposes and for economic purposes and security matters. It's also bad for the environment, right? That just pollutes our planet even more. And unfortunately, this is the only place we have. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. All right. Well, I mean, if we're ready to get started, we can get started. Um, Mark, if you could kind of like tell us a little bit about your background, what got you interested in Ukraine and writing about Ukraine, just a little bit about you before we get into the nitty gritty of Nord. Certainly. So I am Ukrainian American. My grandparents came over from both sides from Soviet Ukraine during the 1950s at the height of McCarthyism. And I am very grateful that while the Red Scare was going on, they kept up with their language and traditions. And they passed it along to my parents. My parents passed it along to me. And I grew up very involved in the Ukrainian-American diaspora community. When I was younger, I went to school like anyone else, Monday through Friday, and then went to language Saturday schools. And I would always complain to my parents, you know, why are my friends in their pajamas watching cartoons? And here I am learning some language in a country I'll never visit. Long story short, in undergrad and graduate school, I studied extensively Eastern Europe and what kind of relationship it has with Western institutions as well as the West in general. So European Union and NATO and and the United States. And I just fell in love with the region because of my ancestral heritage. When I was in graduate school, I did an internship at the NATO office of the Pentagon. I also worked at the Ukrainian parliament for three months and realized that I really want to inform Westerners, or maybe even people of Eastern Europe about the region and why does this place matter? Why should we care? Right. And I'm very fortunate over the last five years that I have published extensively and I've done some interviews with news networks and done a lot of guest lectures at various U.S. institutions and universities. So it's exciting. The topics aren't always fun, but, you know, (laughs) it's important to inform people. That's crease studies in general. You know, it's exciting, but with a little bit of that kind of Soviet gloom over everything. (laughs) All right. So it sounds like you're basically the perfect person to explain the Nord Stream to to us. So we're very excited to have you chat about that with us. Let's just get into it. Could you walk us through the timeline, you know, of what started this whole pipeline business? Like, how does this relate to the energy situation in Europe? Because it's been years in the making. So where did this start? So Russia currently has several pipelines that travel through countries like Belarus and Ukraine into Central Europe. And one of the issues that emerged in the mid-2000s, so 2006 and 2009, was that there were gas disputes disputes with Russia and Ukraine. And because of these disputes, Russia would shut off the gas pipelines. And as a result, Central Europe wouldn't be getting their gas because Ukraine doesn't have it. And now why that's important is at the time, Ukraine was supplying roughly a third of gas to Europe. So it's it's a big supplier, the, the pipelines that go through. 
In addition, countries like Germany are trying to distance themselves from coal, right? We have the Paris agreements to try to promote climate change and, and hopefully countries observe that, but also going away from nuclear energy. Uh, unfortunately, Chernobyl in, in Ukraine and in Pripyat is a very good example. In 86, when that occurred, right, the, the nuclear reactor exploded, thousands of people got sick. So how do we distance ourselves from nuclear energy so that similar situations like that don't occur for health reasons and for environmental reasons and then going away with coal? Well, naturally, gas is the last solution because we are still slowly working towards clean energy. Germany had the idea of having this pipeline constructed, and it's very similar to Nord Stream 1, and that they would be able to get gas from Russia through the Baltic Sea, avoiding Belarus and Ukraine so that when future gas disputes occur, they are not impacted as heavily by, by these situations. So that sounds simple enough, right? Just a direct pipeline from Russia to Germany, no harm done, except that there are massive security implications here. Could you kind of go into the details on that one? Yeah, certainly. So one of the biggest concerns is it now gives Russia a direct route into the heart of, of Europe. And what is interesting is that if there are ever future disputes, and unfortunately there, there are, always will be, right? The, the West is still trying to figure out its relationship with Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And Russia has the opportunity, if it so chooses to do so, where it can shut off the pipeline similar to what it has done with Ukraine and Belarus. And similar situation, right? If it's the winter months, uh, there's a tension in relations, the gas gets shut off, and then unfortunately people will freeze. And, and it's a very big risk because it also puts Russia in a position of power over Central and Western Europe because it knows that it has the ability to control the pipes. Right? People need heating, people need electricity. Absolutely. And one question I had is the certain European players that are kind of privy or not privy to the conversation of Nord Stream 2, how are they going to be hurt economically within the situation should Nord Stream 2 you know, come to fruition? So Ukraine is a good example. It earns roughly $1 billion US in transit fees with the gas that goes through Russia into Central Europe. If that agreement is terminated after 2024, which is currently how the agreement is set, Ukraine will lose a substantial amount of revenue and it is one of the poorest countries in Europe. So it really relies on these transit fees in addition to other types of relationships. Poland has a similar relationship as does Belarus because another pipeline goes through Belarus and Poland to Germany and other parts of Central Europe. So they too will lose a lot in revenue from the pipelines, but also the gas prices change, right? So for example, if Poland and Belarus are supplying Germany with gas, they have control with the certain prices. Of course, you know, there are other matters that get that go into that situation. But if that pipeline becomes obsolete and Germany starts selling to Poland and Belarus and Ukraine, for example, well, now those three countries have to start paying what the German prices are instead of whatever the fees are that initially were going through their countries. So kind of to make up for that, the U.S. US and Germany met this summer. They struck a deal together where, where, interestingly enough, Ukraine and Poland were not invited to this meeting. That's right. But 
at the meeting, they said, no, no, we're going to support you, Ukraine. You're going to get a certain amount of money. Um, they also mentioned, I think, that they were going to support a push towards uh, a green energy transition. And essentially in saying that, yes, you're, we realize you might be circumvented here, but, you know, we will try to prov- support you financially. If Russia does renege on its deal, there will be repercussions. Is that, is that good enough? No, because first of all, there's nothing that is legally binding either country to do that. Something I always found fascinating as well is some supporters of Nord Stream 2 in in the German and Austrian camp say, well, if, for example, the conflict in Donbass is escalating again, well, we'll negotiate with the Russians and turn our gas pipelines off. And, And what I always found interesting was there are roughly 80 million Germans and you know, why would you risk the security of your peoples to shut off gas supply because another European state is being targeted by by Russia? And and you know it pains me to say that, but it's it's a very harsh reality, right? In, in that you have to worry about your citizens first before you start thinking about your neighbor and your region and, and the global security force. But that but that is that is very true. Another thing is some of the provisions discussed are you know tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars and they're one-time deals, right? Again, Ukraine is making roughly a billion dollars US in transit fees annually. So, you know, maybe the first year, that's great. It helps compensate that. But afterwards, that that assistance doesn't exist. Something that I think is great and, and it will require a lot of investment from the United States and Germany is helping Poland and Ukraine with renewable energy and infrastructure because especially in Ukraine, a lot of that is lacking and it would require Western assistance to help them with with those processes. But again, the joint statement was very, very nice in, in how it sounded, but there are no enforcement mechanisms to ensure that these matters occur. So promises, promises, but nothing quite in stone. Right. And and a lot of Ukrainians, for example, are turning back to the Budapest memorandums in 1994, which is where Ukraine willingly gave up its nuclear arsenal. At the time, it was the third largest in the world in exchange for Russia, the United Kingdom and the United States to acknowledge its territorial integrity and sovereignty. And unfortunately, 20 years later, the Donbass conflict and the annexation of Crimea occurred. So the Ukrainians, understandably so, are very concerned because, well, if that happened, you know, again, there are no legal constraints to ensure that this joint statement is enforced. And they're very, very skeptical of, of everything. So interestingly, with the U.S., um, you've written about this and that going into his presidency, President Biden at first was very was very against the pipeline deal. He said it was a bad deal for Europe. And suddenly we've gone from that to him taking off the sanctions of the company that's building the pipeline to Blinken infamously saying that it's a fait accompli. It's it's a done deal. There's nothing we can do about that. What what happened? Do you think there? So these are just assumptions. I, of course, don't know because I'm not in the administration, but a brief timeline. So the pipeline was first installed in July 2018. So this is when they were building it. So within 2018 to 2020, 90% of the pipeline was completed. So when President Biden and his administration were starting to be sworn in in January of 2021, 90 to 95% of the pipeline was completed. 
that still means that 10 to 5% of the pipeline was not finished. And my thought is that the United States really wants to revamp its image and build back better its relationship with the European Union and particularly Germany, which is one of the most powerful countries in Europe. So I think one of the reasons why they eased sanctions was to try to enhance that relationship between Germany and the United States, partially because there is a big fo focus on China and what is China's overall role in the international community. You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, Germany's role in this, you know, kind of facilitating this deal and the United States' role, predominantly the Biden administration kind of taking a back seat and allowing this deal to come to its fruition. What is your take on how the credibility of Germany and the United States as regional allies, how has that credibility been harmed in the eyes of many Central and Eastern Europeans like the Poles, the Ukrainians, um, the Slovaks even, you know, they're losing some money from this deal too, but we haven't heard as much of an outcry from them. So if you could give your take on that, I'd appreciate it. It's interesting, right? So several NATO member countries like the United States, Canada, the Baltics and Poland have been very vocal about Nord Stream 2 and trying to cancel it. And, you know, let's not forget that while things have changed with the construction of the pipeline, Congress is still very against this, right? You have Senator Bob Mendez, who is head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and you have Republican Senator Ted Cruz, right? Menendez is a Democrat, Cruz is a Republican, and they're working together to try to put new sanctions to cancel the cancel the deal. So there are still internal forces working in the United States trying to stop this, and 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 they're determined to do so because they they understand the security, energy, and economic consequences of of a pipeline. Another thing is there's still a lot of time to to finish this. So even though the pipeline has now been completed in terms of it being built, there are still many other hurdles that Gazprom and the Russians have to have to achieve. So I think less so the United States, right? It's easy to blame the Biden administration because they're the presidential office in, in power now. But many members within our community in the United States are still trying to stop it. The same goes for Germany. So while former Chancellor Angela Merkel was supportive of this deal, as was her party, you have a party such as the Green Party in Germany who want to promote environmentalism. They're very against the pipeline based on how the German elections recently finished. It seems like they will now be part of a new coalition, which of course is anyone's guess on how that'll turn out. But if the Green Party is able to get a, a voice that they're able to express themselves, that could potentially still kill the pipeline. So, of course, understandably so, many people are upset with the Germans and the Americans, but there are several Americans and Germans who are still actively working to try to cancel the pipeline. And I don't think we should forget the hard work that they're putting into it, despite all the challenges that exist. I mean, I did also want to touch on just U.S.-Ukraine relations as well, because this the, the past meeting that Zelensky had with Biden uh, back in September, that a lot of people praised that as almost a turning point, especially after the tumultuous Trump years with the that entire scandal. Like, this was a point where, you know, like, things are returning to normal. But it, a big 
point for Zelensky was the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And it feels like, you know, if the U.S. is just kind of taking a step back and letting it happen, this might sour relations a little bit. Do you I mean, what, what, what do you think the future of like U.S.-Ukraine relations are with with this kind of in the middle, the white elephant in the room? Zelensky was able to achieve some benefits and victories, which I think have been slightly overlooked. One of them is the continued cyber relationship with the United States and Ukraine in that, as as you both know, we recently had the solar winds attack on the United States and then there was the colonial pipeline. And Ukraine is a huge testing ground for Russia as, as a cyber actor in that it has had its power grids shut off again during the winter when people need heating and electricity and the Ukrainians are very knowledgeable, not only in in how countries try to infiltrate your systems with, with cyber, but also cyber defense. And one of the, the things that President Biden, President Zelensky discussed was how do we enhance this relationship? And, and I think that is something very useful and powerful that Ukraine can propose going forward as it continues to try to integrate itself with Western institutions to, to show not only do we have a very educated population and a booming information technology sector, but also we are very knowledgeable in cybersecurity. On the other hand, Ukraine really wants to become a member of NATO and Zelensky recently has made this very public. What I think President Zelensky needs to be reminded of is President Biden is only the president of the United States. There are 29 other NATO members and the United States does not have the decision to just allow countries to join on its own. So I know he will have been disappointed because he did not get his yes or no very bluntly about will Ukraine eventually get a membership action plan. It's certainly possible in the future. Ukraine has done a lot in that it conducts several exercises with NATO and Western European countries have helped Ukraine with defense reform and anti-corruption reform. But Ukraine, unfortunately, still has a very long way to go. And that's one of the membership clauses in NATO, as well as the European Union, is cleaning up corruption, trying to get up high standards. Unfortunately, the political situations in Hungary and Poland don't help countries like Ukraine either because of some of the backsliding that is occurring in those two countries, both of which are in the European Union, which which makes it difficult for countries like Ukraine to become part of those organizations, but day by day. Yeah, I think essentially NATO has been pushing back saying, you know, you still have corruption problems there. Like, let's let's wait a little bit. It definitely feels like, oh, we'll do this later. We'll do this later, Zelensky. Like, hold on, like clean up your own shop first and then we'll get back to you. Yes. And Secretary General Stoltenberg was here at Georgetown recently and he spoke with the students. And that was one of the points he made was that. There are some skeptics in NATO about countries like Ukraine joining because or Georgia because of the previous relationship it has had with Russia. But he reiterated that NATO and those aspiring states should be the ones deciding whether or not they're invited to join rather than Russia making the decisions. So they're actively working together, which is great. It's just a matter of you know timing and, and when and how things play out. 
Yeah. And I, I think you do present a good point that like we do kind of the reality is that a lot of people are scared of how Russia reacts to anything. You, you talk about anything in Eastern Europe and it's like, well, if we do this, Russia will get mad. If we do this, Russia will get mad. And so it's sort of like this balance of do we tiptoe? Do we just walk right through and see what Russia's going to do? Because sometimes the threats are real. Sometimes they're not real. And uh, it's with Russia's military capabilities as well. It's not like Russia's capable of going into a lengthy war over every, anything right now either. So yeah, it, I, I think right now is a very interesting time between watching what's, what's what's happening with Ukraine, with Moldova, and sort of keeping an eye on that. Exactly. And I think what people need to be reminded of as well is, yes, countries like Georgia and Ukraine have, for a very long period of time throughout history, been part of whether it was the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, etc., but the Baltics and Poland throughout periods of history were also part of the Russian entity. And they are both all, all four of those countries, you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, member of NATO and member of European Union. So using that argument, I think, against Georgia or Ukraine should be invalid. And speaking of NATO, I wanted to hear your take on this. Given that so many NATO members in Europe will now just become, you know, assumably even more dependent on Russian natural gas and oil and such like that. Um, do you think there's a possibility that this may influence their actions of being active participants within NATO, given that they're getting literally so much of their energy resources now from Russia, who traditionally NATO has been postured against? It is certainly possible, right? Catherine, you do bring up a very good point in that if all the hurdles are cleared with Nord Stream 2, it does give Russia a considerable amount of power and influence on how these countries interact with each other. On the other hand, I don't foresee NATO collapsing. I think it's a very strong relationship other countries are slowly being invited, right? Montenegro and North Macedonia recently joined. And I think because they all believe in the mission and what is NATO, that they will continue this relationship. Of course, it will be significantly more difficult with the, with the potential that Russia would have. But we need to stay strong. We need to stay positive. We need to work together as a collective bunch. Well, it brings to mind that the gas prices in Europe are surging and a lot of people are pointing the finger at Russia. You know, Ukraine warned us this is this is what's going to happen. And it reminded me of over the summer, quite a few articles came out actually sort of pushing back, saying that the Nord Stream 2, saying that Russia is going to use it to manipulate Europe is a little bit alarmist, that if Russia were to do something so extreme as to just start cutting off gas which it has done before, but say to not Ukraine, but to other countries, that other countries would push back, that there would be serious and real repercussions. And yet, you know, it makes me think of if if the spike in gas prices are in fact related to Russia right now, not a whole lot of pushback is happening right now. There, people are sort of just wringing their hands and going, oh no, right now, rather than any actual action being taken right now. Right. And, and Lara, very timely to that, a European news outlet called EU Observer published a piece that Gazprom has cut the flow of gas from Belarus to the European Union by 70%, 7-0. So it is very alarming. And there was a piece in The Guardian that came out a few days ago as well, where Gazprom was saying, well, if you let gas, if you let Nord Stream 2 completed, if you let our gas through, well, then we won't have these spikes in, in gas. Things anymore. will get better if you trust exactly. us. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so at, at this point, they're not even pretending anymore. And I think 
that Western leaders should be very concerned with how this is being conducted. And we shall see how the new German coalition is formed and how they respond to this negativity that they're receiving from their ally as well as their partner countries. I'm also kind of of the opinion that there is still time to stop this, you know, despite the fact that it's already built, that the U.S. has kind of taken a step back already saying, you know, we're hands off of this. This is beyond us now. What do you think it would look like if this if this were to be stopped? You know, if, if finally we said, you know what, never mind, the deal's off. Because I, I feel like there might be repercussions from Russia there as well, that they might also kind of start doing something aggressive in response to that as well. So there's there's kind of, it's almost like a lose-lose at this point. Yes, I think now that the pipe is finished, it makes it considerably more challenging. Had it not been finished, it would have been a lot easier because one could have argued, well, the pipeline was never finished. It was not finalized in its construction phase. But either way, it seems like this is this is a messy business that kind of we have to just keep an eye on right now in the midst of all the other messy business that's happening in Europe right now. Mark, if you could summarize, and if you were talking to the average American, why should the average American care about this issue? You know, sometimes I think to a lot of people and to most Americans, foreign affairs and foreign policy seems like a very abstract thing that doesn't touch the very basis and foundations of their lives. So if you had like one minute to talk to the average American, tell them why they should care about this, what would you say? Currently, according to the European Union, almost 50% of the gas that it receives is is from Russia, which, again, allows Russia to have a a monopoly over the European continent. I think one of the reasons why the United States should care is that it will lose some of its relationships that it has. What are we, the United States? We're a country that promotes democracy and freedom around the world. And if you allow an autocratic regime to start controlling the European continent and allowing other states to backslide, that puts democracy in jeopardy. Now, of course, democracy is not perfect. We all argue this in our theory courses in international relations, but currently it's the best thing we have. And I think that's something that, if I'm not mistaken, Prime Minister Churchill said when when he was in office. And we need to worry about our collective security. We need to worry about working together, right? Nord Stream 2 not only is bad for energy purposes and for economic purposes and security matters, it's also bad for the environment, right? If you continue to use more and more fuel, that just pollutes our planet even more. And unfortunately, this is the only place we have right now. We haven't colonized other planets. We have to worry about this health and security matters in in that perspective too. Well, I think that's a perfect note to end on. You've given us, you know, a homework assignment to go reach out, become more engaged, spread this awareness because like, not a lot of people know about Nord Stream 2. And uh, so we really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast today, Mark, and taking some time. We really hope to have you back as well. You know, I'm sure there's going to be more Ukraine related topics that we can chat about in the future. Certainly. Thank you both for having me. Again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you.